New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Our guest today, Dr. Charles Tart, has posed two seminal questions for us about the nature of our existence. He lays out two schools of thought in theory. He asks, are you a meaningless accident in a meaningless cosmos, the result of zillions of meaningless molecular collisions that just happen to turn out this way? A meat-based computer that will soon die whose life doesn't really matter to anything or anyone but your illusion of a self? Or are you some sort of spiritual creature potentially in touch with something greater and higher, as well as your biological and physical existence? As we contemplate these two views, we might ask ourselves, how does each possibility inform and direct our lives? Today we'll be exploring the premise that we do not have to artificially separate science from spirituality with our guest, Dr. Charles Tart. Charles Tart is internationally known for his psychological work on the nature of consciousness, particularly on altered states of consciousness and for his research in scientific parapsychology. He is one of the founders of the field of transpersonal psychology, Tart's two classic books, Altered States of Consciousness and Transpersonal Psychologies, were instrumental in introducing these subjects to modern psychology. He is also the author of many other books, including The Secret Science of the Soul, How Evidence of the Paranormal is Bringing Science and Spirit Together. Join us for the next hour as we explore scientific support for a spiritual dimension to our life with our guest, Dr. Charles T. Tart. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Charlie, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, Justine. Here we are together. It's been many, many years. We first met in 1973, and I remember it very well because you were instrumental in something that you said that in a, in a conference that stimulated my partner, Michael Toms, to suggest that we even begin this work called New Dimensions. So I remember I, that, yes. So I want to acknowledge you as one of the co-founders of this work <laughs> and, and many other works. Uh, so I, w- I was quite excited at this 
enthusiastic young couple who wanted to help spread material about the psychic stuff, personal growth, spiritual growth, and all that. And you guys picked up the ball and ran with it, and it's been wonderful. Wow, it's really, really has. It's been an adventure. It's been an adventure. And I'd like to talk about that, too, because it's... Let's go back to your early, early life, Charlie, so that people really understand from where you're coming. You you grew up in a traditional religion, but you've always been interested in in practical science. So I'd love for you to kind of give us a flavor of your early life and how it led you to where you are now. Yeah, well, my parents weren't religious, although my mother knew the right answer to everything. <laughs> but my grandmother was, and she took me to Sunday school and church. And, you know, grandmothers, they're the source of unconditional love, you know. So if it was good enough for her, it was good enough for me. And even after she died, I continued on to church for a while. I was raised as a Lutheran. But by the time I got to my teenage years, I had also fallen in love with science and began to realize that besides just being a fascinating way to build new machines and stuff, science had views about the universe, and that view was that religion was basically nonsense, and often crazy making nonsense at that point, which is true in a lot of ways, okay? I mean, a lot of people have suffered psychologically because of their religious beliefs. I certainly picked up all sorts of conflicts from it because I wanted to be good, but uh, what I was taught in church and Sunday school wasn't very good on how to be good. So I know a lot of people have gone through this kind of conflict, and usually they go to one or the other extreme. They say, right, science is right, religion is nonsense, I'll have nothing to do with it. Or, yes, my religion is true, I will totally ignore science if it has any contradiction whatsoever with my religion. But I was very lucky because in my very wide reading about science, I came across old books on psychical research, as it was called. Psychical research was the name of a field of study that people came up with who were going through the same kind of conflict and said, yeah, science is showing that a lot of this religion stuff is crazy or bad or false, but is it all bad and false? Or is there a core of truth in there that we want to be very careful about just throwing out? Because if you don't have some kind of ethical code that makes sense in terms of religion or the like, what's going to keep you from being totally materialistic, selfish, and so forth? And how do you deal with that? Well, they came up with the wonderful idea that Science was more than just the findings of the time, which was mostly Newtonian sort of physics. Science was a method for improving the quality of your knowledge. And suppose we applied that method to phenomena, events, experiences that were people called religious or spiritual. Could we get a clearer idea of what was actually true, what was useful, and so forth? And I thought that was an incredible idea. And basically, that's been the constant theme in my professional and personal life. I'm open to all sorts of religious and spiritual ideas. I think lots of them are crazy and pathological, like all organized human ideas. But you can use the essence of science to start clarifying what's actually true. So you you were attracted to the method. Yeah. So and and that method in in its 
pristine state is what? Uh, the method is very straightforward because it realizes what human weaknesses are, okay? To oversimplify, there's a few traditional ways of finding out the truth. One is you ask an authority. Of course, we know authorities are often wrong, and they defend their wrong positions because it makes them authorities. Another way is you learn through experience. But we all know some people who have a lot of experience in certain areas, and they don't seem to learn much from them. <laughs> Another is logical reasoning. I will sit down and figure out the exact nature of the universe, and people come up with an awful wide variety of things that way, and a lot of rationality is actually rationalization. I don't like that person. I'll figure out a good reason why in a minute, something like that. And then sometimes people have altered states of consciousness experience, mystical experiences where they seem to have a revelation of the truth. Well, science recognized that all of these can be useful and they can really lead you astray, but suppose you combine them. So to me, the essence of science is, first off, try to get a better understanding of what the facts are. What can you actually observe? And to me, that includes what you can observe in terms of human experience, not just external stuff. Okay, well, what we human beings love to do is explain why things happen the way we observe them. So we come up with theories. Okay, be logical, come up with your theories. But we can come up with a good theory for anything. Again, it's that rationalization ability. It's one of our greatest drawbacks and one of our greatest strengths. Excuse me, but can you give me an example of where we rationalize something. Sure. I'm walking in this studio for the first time. I notice there's some drums and cymbals behind you, and that's because you've decided to add a dramatic flourish to New Dimensions interviews once in a while. <laughs> now, of course, I know from talking to your engineer that they're here for other purposes that have nothing to do with that. But we come up with theories. So science adds the thing of, yeah, come up with a good theory that makes sense, but it's got to make predictions about things you actually haven't checked out yet, and then you have to go check those predictions. And if your predictions come true, you know, if you end up running a flourish with the drums and cymbals on the end of this show, oh, my theory's pretty good. It's worth working with some more. If not, it's too bad whether I like my theory, whether I think it's brilliant, whether it uses all the new fashionable words, right? You know, it's an inverse quark matrix in nine-dimensional space. <laughs> or, doesn't matter if it doesn't predict what you can actually see happening. It's got to be revised or thrown out. And then there's an insistence on sharing all these things. I, as an individual human, as an individual scientist, am biased in certain ways. I see some things too readily and exaggerate them. I don't even notice other things. But we're not all biased and crazy in exactly the same ways. So if we keep sharing what we see, what our thinking is, and so forth, we can start begin to compensate for each other's limitations. So we start out with crude ideas based on pretty imprecise observations and funny reasons that we think they happen, and gradually we get clearer and clearer facts, and we understand them in ways that work better and better. What about how we give over to authority, uh, collective um authority of different different sorts. So what would you have to say about that? What how can we guard ourselves 
from just falling into, oh, they must know know it because they have a Ph.D. or they must yes. know it, well, you know. Uh, Gee, I should have worn my white lab coat <laughs> so you'll know I was a real scientist. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I did that once. I was invited to speak at the Second World Conference on Religions in Chicago some years ago, and I knew all these people from different religions would be wearing their special outfits and whatnot, and I thought, I'm going to talk about science and religion. Oh, I wore a white lab coat and carried a clipboard and had a pass for security clearance and a pocket calculator. I had my special sacred clothes on to prove I was a science. Yes, we can overdo giving authority authority over us, or we can be rebellious and not pay enough attention to authority. So that's where it comes back into does this authority understanding make predictions that actually work? So, for instance, I've done experiments to test the idea of telepathy, that a person can figure out what's in the mind of another person when there's no physically known means of communication. Well, the authorities, the people who think that a materialistic approach is all we need to know about the universe, say, well, you can do the experiments if you want, but nothing will ever happen. Oh, gee, I do some experiments and something happens. Sometimes a person knows what's in another person's mind. Okay, their theory doesn't account for what actually goes on. I have evidence that telepathy happens sometimes. I'm going to continue to work with that, like research I did on trying to make telepathy work better or something okay, like that. I want to know more about that in just one moment, Charlie. So I'm going to uh, remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Charles Tart. He's the author of The Secret Science of the Soul, How Evidence of the Paranormal is Bringing Science and Spirit Together. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, paradigm-sys, paradigm-sys, as in systems, I'm assuming that that's what that right. stands for, paradigm-sys.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Charles Tart, and he's the author of many books, including The Secret Science of the Soul. Charlie, uh, we were just starting to launch into your experiments with telepathy and uh, how telepathy, how's it coming? I mean, is, is it real? Can, can you verify it, that it's something that's actually real? 
Well, by the time I finished growing up to adulthood, I had read enormous numbers of books and stuff dealing with the scientific investigation of psychical stuff or parapsychological stuff, as it's often called. And it was clear to me several kinds of ESP are real in the sense there's so much really good evidence for them that anybody who says they don't exist is simply ignorant or very biased, okay? And in the book of mine you referred to, I talk about the big five, the five phenomena that have so much evidence. And most of these are kinds of extrasensory perception. One is telepathy, where a person is thinking something or emoting something, and somebody else who's completely shielded from them by ordinary means picks it up. So many experiments showing that happens. Second is clairvoyance, or is it or remote viewing, as it's commonly called now, where you ask somebody to describe something that's happening at a distance, you know, miles away or something like that. Your ordinary senses can't tell you anything. And they give you a good enough description sometimes that you know it's it's not just luck, okay? They, they really tuned into that somehow. The third is precognition, predicting the future. Classic test on that done over and over again was a deck of cards was very thoroughly shuffled in the future, okay? But now you were told an hour from now when that deck of cards is going to be thoroughly shuffled, would you please write down now what the order of the deck of cards was? And too often people get more right than they should by chance. Does information travel back through time? I mean, our ordinary concepts of time sure don't handle that. I personally find precognition absolutely ridiculous, but the evidence is overwhelming that it's a fact, whether I so understand you, you it or really, not. You're, you're not predisposed to believe that one, but, but you're looking at the facts and the evidence, and it's right. giving you another view of it that it, you have to acknowledge. I'm committed to be a scientist, and when the facts say X happens, then I've got to admit it, whether I like X or whether I understand X or not. Now, those are three kinds of extrasensory perception, telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition. Uh, it's often unclear which one is happening at a particular time, but they're all ways of getting information from one place to another. The other two are forms of action, psychokinesis, where wishing for something affects it. The classic experiments were machines rolling dice while a person in the corner was told, okay, for the next dozen trials, make more ones come up. Thank you. Now for the next dozen trials, make more twos come up and so forth. That kind of systematic rotation was done to even out any biases in the dice. It works often enough that we know psychokinesis happens, and it's been done on electronic devices and the like. It's crazy. And the other is sort of a biological version of psychokinesis where the, the process you're trying to affect is a biological thing. Can you make these bacteria in this lab preparation grow faster and whatnot. And of course, practical application, can you help heal some people who otherwise are going to take a long time to heal? These are the big five, you know, and there are other things that I think there's enough evidence for that they may be true, but I'm not ready to sit down and say, yeah, that's really what it seems to be. And those are like near-death experiences? Near-death experiences. Of course, as an experience, they are what they are, okay? 
But do they mean we really survive death? I'm still on the fence about that. There's some pretty good evidence, and then there's a lot of complications and whatnot. Out-of-the-body experiences, things like that, reincarnation, that gets much more complex. Right. I deal with it in my book, but I put that in the many maybes category. But the, the top five have had a lot of research yes. done. Each of them has had hundreds of experiments done to the highest kinds of scientific standards. And they're peer-reviewed. Yeah. Now, most people don't know that. That's why I titled this uh, printing of the book The Secret Science of the Soul, because it's extremely hard to get this stuff published in any mainstream scientific journals, because the bias, scientists are human after all, is that it doesn't happen, so there must be something wrong with the experiment, even if you can't figure out what. That's not much of a way to do science. All right, there, so that reminds me that we really need to talk about the difference between that what is termed scientism. Scientism is one of the most influential religions on the planet, and most followers of scientism don't know they're following a religion. Scientism is a term coined by sociologists back in the 1930s, I think, when they realized that a lot of scientists or people acquainted with scientific findings in general forgot that science is a continuous process, that everything is subject to more tests, different kinds of explanation and so forth, and started to think that science had the facts, and that was the end of the thing. For example, a lot of these old science books I read, a fact about science was given over and over again. Matter can neither be created nor destroyed. That was a known fact about the universe. Of course, we didn't have any atomic energy devices yet then. And eventually, real science discovered, yeah, matter and energy can be transformed back and forth. But scientism basically is about a hardening of the mental arteries. Instead of staying open and looking at things, you've got a fixed basis to work from. Now, in some ways, that's useful. Okay, if I go out to do some carpentry, uh, something needs repairing in my house, I don't want to have to figure out all over again, how do you use a saw? How do you use a hammer? Okay, I've got some skills on using those things. But it also helps if I realize a saw is not the appropriate tool for this job. Scientism gives you a feeling that you understand the universe. That's very satisfying. Who wants to say, I don't know that much? It's funny, as I get older, I know less and less. Mm -hmm. But uh, scientism is a pathology of the mind, really. And it's widespread and and comforting. (laughs) That brings us to the idea of skeptics, those skeptics who would say, oh, this when you're talking about, like, say, parapsychology in these five areas of parapsychology, they would say, oh, that's all magical thinking. And there are skeptics, and, and they're, they're, people are thinking they're really smart to be skeptical for all of this. And what would you have to say about that? Well, these are the people I call pseudo-skeptics because they're not skeptical. I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical in the sense that most explanations about things, I think, well, okay, that's probably the best we can do now, but maybe we'll learn some more. Maybe there's better understandings. But skeptics is a high-class term. It means you don't fall for everything. So, of course, rather than say, I'm a doubter or I'm a denier, it's much more high-class to say I'm a skeptic. Well, the terrible thing is that if you 
start interacting with these people who are skeptical about these things, you find out they actually know nothing about the scientific experiments. And the more hard-hearted and noisy they are about their so-called skepticism, the less they actually know. I've met very, very few people who are in doubt about some of these psychic things but who actually know anything about the evidence. That's, that's not the way you do science, you know. Fact is always primary in science. Your theory is always secondary, which is a shame because we love our theories. We do love our theories, and we, do, we, we find it very uncomfortable to live in what is termed ambiguity. When, when, when we, mm-hmm. we, we, and especially in Western culture, we, we just go to solutions really, really fast because we don't want, we want to have it kind of nailed down. And so what would you say about the living in ambiguity? And- it's tough. Okay, I mean, let's face it, life is hard. Things happen that make us very unhappy, that confuse us and whatnot. So... We have a desire, as it were, to figure it out. And now I can get ahead of the game because I know how it really works and so forth. So we get very emotionally attached to our belief systems. A lot of people's religion is held in that way, you know. Don't you dare question it. This is the thing that says I'm going to be all right in spite of the suffering. But... To be able to live in ambiguity, you know, I mean, again, don't go to extremes on this, right? You know, I'm not going to sit here and think, is this really Justine sitting across from me? It could be somebody imitating her. That's getting a little extreme. (laughs) But to realize that the explanations and beliefs we have may be the best we have now, but don't grab that tightly. Be open to learning more about it. This gets me to one of the things that's puzzled me the most. I've spent more than 50 years working on psychology, altered states, parapsychology, and the like, and so much of it is relevant to the idea of religion. And so I think religious people would be extremely interested to know that something like telepathy exists. I mean, for instance, from a materialistic paradigm, if you pray for anything, you're talking to yourself. End of story. You might be talking to yourself out loud, and your prayer will go as far as the walls of the room, and that's the end of the story. So that but, goes to my introduction to the program. Like, if you're a materialist, that means that— or, or, All religion is crap. Yeah, every, yeah, and there is no mystical, there is no spiritual. It's just what you see is what you get. Right. Molecules bumped into each other for no reason at all. They ended up as us because the ones that happened to survive survived. It doesn't mean a damn thing. That's a pretty grim view of the world, and most people do not want to face that view. Okay, I come along and say, wait a minute, telepathy, it's not quite the same thing as prayer, but we do know that what somebody just thinks about or wants in their mind can sometimes affect other humans at a distance so they know about it. So don't say the idea that prayer can't possibly do anything is a certainty. No, maybe it can. 
Let's find out what it can be. And there are studies of psychic healing where sometimes the main vehicle is prayer that indicates that, yeah, sometimes that seems to have effects. And that's uh, like repeated. It's it's an experiment that can be repeated. And yeah. peer, peer groups can do it here or in Japan or in Brazil, and they can repeat that. They can repeat it sometimes because ah. think about it for a minute. I've been writing a paper on science and how it's going to have to be expanded to cover the spiritual and the like. And one of the concepts I've come up is that science is done in Newtonian shields. We assume that the universe is basically Newtonian, and so I can take a set of circumstances, an experiment or something, and isolate it from everything around it. Right? You and I are in a soundproof room. The micro- There's no microphones in here, a lie for the moment, but let's go that way. So nobody can hear us outside the room. But wait a minute. Once you have evidence that telepathy, as just one example, works, I can't be so sure that we're really shielded from outside influences or that we're not really influencing something outside. To simply deny it is to not solve the problems that might create. It's to try to sweep it under the rug, and that's not the way to do it. We'll talk more about that. that, uh, The Newtonian shield. The Newtonian shield. I really want to know more about that. That's really critical, I think, to what what we're talking about. I'm here with Dr. Charles Tart. He's the author of The Secret Science of the Soul, How Evidence of the Paranormal is Bringing Science and Spirit Together. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Charles Tart, and he's the author of The Secret Science of the Soul. And Charlie, you just mentioned something called, I asked about whether we could repeat these experiments, and you talked about Newtonian shielding. In other words, we were, we're, we're using kind of 20th century or 19th or 18th century criteria with which to experiment with this. And so tell us about how we might look at it and how we might go forward with that experiment. Well, one concept or one aspect of the Newtonian shield is that you can isolate the experimenter from the rest of the experiment. The experimenter can stay outside the shield. But even without getting into any kind of ESP, we now have lots of evidence that the experimenter's biases can be subtly communicated to subjects and make the experiment come out the way the experimenter thinks it should come out rather than actually measure what's really going on. So with they're human psychically days. actually influencing it. Is that well, what you're saying? Uh, you've, you've added the psychic part of it. I'm adding <laughs> things like. Uh, for instance, I did hypnosis experiments years ago when I was doing my postdoc work at Stanford, and we were doing a big experiment on does hypnotizing somebody make them more suggestible as compared to just doing it with them in their ordinary state? And so that's a very straightforward experiment. You have one group of people that you hypnotize them one on 
at a time and then give them a standard suggestibility test. And the other group of people, you just chat socially for a few minutes instead of hypnotizing them and then give them the same kind of test. Lots of experimenters doing it, hundreds of subjects run. Well, I noticed after I'd run my first few subjects that I was not treating the subjects the same way. I mean, I'll exaggerate this, but when I read the suggestibility test, somehow for one group, I did it sort of business-like. You know, you hold your hand out and it's beginning to get very heavy. And if you concentrate on that feeling, it gets heavy. And the other group, there was more of a hold your hand out and think about what it would be like to be heavy. And if you don't do the tests the same way, you're going to get a difference that has nothing to do with whether they've been hypnotized or not. Well, I brought this up at a lab meeting, and all the other experimenters thought I was nuts. You know, Charlie's morbidly introspective and worried about it. Fine, so you won't mind then if I hang a microphone in the lab and just record you giving the suggestibility tests. And then I gave that to judges who didn't know what was what, and they knew which way the test had been going. Simply by little things like voice tone, you can include biases. So you became a scientist to your own experiment. Exactly. And, and in fact, my main scientific project in my life has been trying to figure out how the hell the mind of Charlie Tart works. But <laughs> that, that's an ongoing project. There's mm-hmm. no final answers yet. Anyway, so the Newtonian box doesn't work if you're not isolated in the Newtonian sense, if there's an experimenter with somebody. But even if you then shield them in a normal way, once you allow for something like telepathy— the experimenter can still be having an influence. So these experiments with telepathy, clairvoyance, things like that, are repeatable very well with certain experimenters, and with other experimenters, they're not. And usually these experimenters are getting the results they think they should get. Does this have something to do, Charlie, with the uh, idea in physics that uh, the observer, then like the wave and the particle, it, it will be a particle, or a wave, depending on the observer. It, 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 is that part yeah. of it? Some of my parapsychologist colleagues are physicists, and they've thought about this in physics terms. And one of them, Dean Radin at the Institute for Noetic Sciences, has actually been repeating a classic experiment, uh, whether particles go through either a slit or I, I can't describe it basically, but it's the classic thing that led to quantum physics. And he's having people actually concentrate on the slit the particles go through, and it makes a difference as to what kind of patterns they get, suggesting that the act of observation may be a fundamental reality in physics, that mind is just as fundamental as gravity or electricity or something like that. It's too technical for me to really follow, but, but it's it has fascinating. revolutionary implications. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. Because that just then opens up the whole thing about how all right. things are, are connected and that the universe is alive. Mm-hmm. And, and then you get into the non-locality where what I think Einstein called it, spooky at a distance. Spooky action at, at a distance, yes. Where things, one, um, what, an electron moves or changes over here and then miles and miles away, it changes instantaneously at another yes. It, it, Which is quite insulting to our intelligence. It's too bad the data keeps saying it does. Exactly. Now, that's <laughs> the whole point. Now, I know that what you have been dedicated to has been, and what this book is about, has been um, to bring science and spirituality 
together somehow that, that that they don't have to negate one another you you don't have to be in an either or camp but you can be in both so please tell us charlie what do you mean by when you use the term spirituality i was thinking about that earlier today in terms of religions and wondering has there ever been a religion that said We know a lot of interesting things. We're not sure they're all true, but if you work some of these, it'll make your life more interesting. Instead of, we have the truth revealed to us from a higher level, believe it or else. Has there been a religion that's that's practiced a little humility that way? Okay. Religions say there's a spiritual level of existence, that there are values, for instance, that actually are real. They're not just an arbitrary thing that helps biological organisms survive and the like. There are right ways and wrong ways to do things. There are connections between us that transcend mere physical connections. Some of our ideas about that, I'm sure, are false in the sense that some people have had some interesting mystical experiences. It was a revelation compared to their everyday life. And then somehow the people who followed them have all glomped onto that as if this is the absolute truth forever and ever and ever. And that's very comforting. Yeah, it's very comforting. To say, oh, I don't have to think about it anymore. It's just, if I follow these rules and everything will be okay. If I say my prayers, give money to the priests and whatnot, I'm guaranteed salvation. But then life doesn't kind of work that way and, and... and then you have to rationalize just people who have terrible things happen to them and whatnot. Okay, I, I don't want to knock religion particularly because I really appreciate how much we need it. You know, mm-hmm. I can talk about being able to live in ambiguity as a talent that makes you more flexible and open to things. But wow, it's tough and it's mood dependent, you know. There are times when, when I'm not doing so well in life, I want a God to take care of me, preferably a mommy God, right? <laughs> right. That, that, daddy, that daddy God no, tends no. to get off too easily right. about yeah, things. Right. Uh, and I will admit to that part of myself, you know, we, we were all children. We had parents who were like gods to us. That's part of our circuits, as it mm-hmm. were, and we have to acknowledge it. But we also have to try to get at what the truth of things is, or at least a better approximation to truth, which means an ability to question what we think we know. So I would like to see what we might call an experimental spirituality. You try different things to see what happens. For instance, meditation. A lot of spiritual systems around that say, do this kind of meditation and all will be well. It's not working. Oh, do some more of it. It's not working. Oh, do a really concentrated retreat of it. Maybe that's not the right kind of meditation for that particular person, or it's going to have the wrong kinds of effects. Where is the scientific knowledge we could develop that will say, this kind of meditation will work well for that kind of person and drive the third kind of person crazy and totally bore the fourth person? Okay, We this, could learn that. This gets into your dream project uh, because y- you have indicated that there is a way that we could go, that we could scientifically go to the different personality types. And when somebody would come to you and say, Charlie, uh, uh, how, how should I meditate? 
you would have them take a test. Well, take how, some tests to tell me about their personality and whatnot. And then, based on tests already given to thousands and thousands of people of different personality types who've done different kinds of meditation, I could say something like, okay, Zen meditation is pretty good for your type, although only 20% find it really satisfactory, but it doesn't hurt. On the other hand, Sufi dancing is really bad for your type, right? 30% give it up, 10% get institutionalized and whatnot, and 20% say they're now in love. I mean, I'm just making up these numbers because we don't know, but we could find out. In the old days, spiritual teachers didn't talk to each other, and they defended their particular religion. I have a dream of a conference where outstanding spiritual teachers who really want to learn will say, okay, my system's pretty good on A, B, and C, but we have an awful time with D. Anybody got any ideas on what might work better for D to actually help each other? It's not one size fits all. Right, exactly. So there we go. So I, I, I encourage that project to go forward, whether you take it forward or someone else does it, that that would be really very helpful and yeah. useful to us because I'm too, I know I'm that— I'm too old to take it up, but this is a project for younger people. It's going to take a long time, I but love it'll it will help so much. I love it. I definitely love it. So again, going back to your— what I would call your definition or your experience of what you feel is spirituality. Have you? Have we really nailed that down yet? No. What that, no. <laughs> we haven't nailed it down, and I will carefully slide away from being pinned down too much because much of what spirituality about has to do with what we might call the intelligence of the heart, and you can't lock that up precisely in the intelligence of the brain, the the intelligence of logic. They're both useful kinds of information, but they don't quite translate. They can't be quantified, so to speak. When when sometimes one domain of intellect will illuminate emotion and vice versa, but we have to learn what's intelligent in all of them. I have been so impressed reading Gurdjieff's ideas, for instance, as one spiritual system where he talked about how we have different kinds of functioning. There is intellectual functioning. There is emotional functioning. There is body instinctive functioning. And you're born with a certain amount of it, but then all of them can be trained to be much better or they can be neglected and made neurotic. Okay, so I was an excellent example most of my life of my intellect was overdeveloped and emotional intelligence, nah, I wasn't the kind of person to talk to about your feelings. Uh, bodily stuff, no. But these things can be trained, and people can become more wide-spectrum, as it were, more able to, to help other people to live better themselves. So what I see when you're saying that, and I, I find this really exciting, if you think about the body and you think the heart system, the circulatory system and the digestive system and the nervous system and all of that, but in the body, they they all like work together in in a kind of collaboration yeah. that's that's yeah. that has that works if if we're healthy. And so here we might have a propensity to have more intellectual prowess or something. That's what we emphasize, and we don't emphasize the emotional part. Or we might have other propensities, and I'm going to have to 
stop right here and and remind our listeners, and we're going to go on with this in just one moment, that I'm here with Dr. Charles Tart, and he is the author of The Secret Science of the Soul. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Charles Tard, and he's the author of The Secret Science of the Soul, How Evidence of the Paranormal is Bringing Science and Spirit Together. And we're just talking about, the, we were using an example of the intellectual body, the emotional body, and the physical body, and and how we it, different persons might emphasize one or the other, and that maybe we need to make it more integrated as and in the way that our our other bodily functions work can can you say something about that yeah i realized years ago that i was overdeveloped intellectually wise but my emotional intelligence my bodily intelligence they were awful they were, they were dumb and neurotic i've spent years trying to do something more about them and i think i'm almost normal for emotional intelligence now but i'm not good i'm just up to normal but the and it's easy to separate these things conceptually because that's the intellectual part of me talking but in actual fact they interact so for instance i've done a lot of meditation exercises that involve trying to pay attention to what's going on in your body sensation wise moment by moment which is interesting in and of itself but one of the side effects as it were or maybe it's a principal effect rather than a side effect, is that emotions generally are accompanied by particular kinds of feelings in the body. Well, often an emotion is actually a mixture of several emotions and you're confused about what you're really feeling. But if you can tune into those body feelings better, then you may notice, yeah, I'm really depressed. And what's that feeling like? Anger in my body. Oh, this is more complicated than I thought. By tuning into body sensations, you acquire more intelligence about the emotional things and maybe some of the intellectual things. So you might say, if it's if if you're feeling anger, you're thinking it. This might be anger, but you go underneath that and go, "What does it feel like? Ah, yeah. it feels hot in the mm-hmm. my midsection. That's mm-hmm. what what I'm feeling, mm-hmm. actually physically feeling." And then it takes it out of having to judge yeah. whether it's anger or this or that. Or it feels good. And here I'm telling myself I'm such a reasonable, calm person, easy to work with. But, you know, actually, I like getting pissed off about things. Oh, better watch that one. <laughs> right. There's a, your personality trait yeah. and your yeah. tendency and your preference 
and your upbringing and your habits. Mm-hmm. Oh, Charlie, it just gets there's so much in there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I can see where it would be hard to do experiments to show, the, uh, as you say in the subtitle of the book, bringing science and spirit together, because the experiments are are not easily conveyed or, yeah. or even, even made you, up. The least you learn is from the experiments you don't do. If you decide beforehand something won't work, let's see, one of my favorite quotes was from Henry Ford, who's reputed to have said something like, the person who thinks he can and the person who thinks he can't are both right. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing ventured, nothing gained. It's going to take a lot of people working for a long time to really increase our knowledge here, but it's so important that we understand our own human functioning better. I mean, it's one thing to tell people to be good, but how do you control the anger, the loneliness, the jealousy, the one-upsmanship urges and whatnot? It's so important. So what what you're really doing is to opening up the field is what you're doing saying okay let's really look at this in a in a scientific way and with the method of science and adding the perspective that it's not just better biology there's some kind of reality to the spiritual you know there's something about love and understanding and things like that that are more than just biological and that's part of the whole picture that gives meaning to life Exactly what the meaning is, we got a lot of figuring out to do instead of just take what some authority tells you at the final meeting. But we can learn more. Charlie, I would love for you to share, I know that you share this in the book, and it, it's really great, um, a psychic exper- experience that you had that was, was your own personal experience. And because I thought that that was fascinating, and, and this is part of it, that, that, that our experience should not be denied as, okay, this is oh, just yeah. bunk. And, you know, it's funny. I initially started training as a clinical psychologist but decided I didn't have enough emotional intelligence to work with that. But I've been in that function many times helping people who've had psychic and spiritual experiences who've been told that it's crazy and telling them, no, no, there's a name for that sort of thing. It doesn't mean you're crazy. You don't have to deny that part of yourself. Really? You, a professor, an authority figure, says it could mean something real? (sighs) A simple kind of therapy, as it way, but... Yes. So personal experience. I know, I think I know what experience you're talking about, okay? I decided on the basic reality of this stuff just from reading the scientific literature. I hadn't had any personal experiences for a long time. But once I'd met a, another psychologist who'd spent a lot of time in India meditating back when that was an unusual thing to do, and we wanted to talk some more. And he was coming to the Bay Area where I lived, and we were going to get together one night. And he told me where to meet him. He was at, um, he'd be in the kitchen of this house, and there was a meeting in the front room. So don't come to the front door and interrupt that, but just come between the houses and pick him up. So I'm driving over there. It's a winter night. And I started getting overwhelmed by images of being beaten up or shot and gangs of people. And it, it, was, it was like, I'm tuned into a different station. This isn't me. This is not the way my mind works. And it was so intense that three times I pulled over and got ready to make a U-turn and go back home. 
while another part of me would had a little clinical training was saying, oh, yeah, he's passed for normal all these years, but obviously he's crazy. <laughs> and another part that says, you should be ashamed to give in to this fear. So I made myself go over. Uh, my friend was standing on the sidewalk. I didn't have to walk between the houses because I thought I'd get shot if I walked between the houses. I didn't tell him I'd had a psychotic break on the way over. <laughs> we went off to a coffee shop, talked for an hour. I tried not to think about it some more, but I got a letter from him a week or so later. And he said, incidentally, when you picked me up, I was really glad you got there and we went away because I was having all these worries about being shot and beaten up and so forth. And it's a nice residential neighborhood. And incidentally, did you know they kidnapped Patty Hearst a block down the street a few minutes after we left? Huh? I wasn't crazy. <laughs> There was a gang of people coming with violence on their mind who did shoot at people with cyanide-tipped bullets. Some part of me was trying to say, don't go there. Right, but right. Since my timing was okay, it makes a good story in retrospect. But it yeah. makes you, it makes me appreciate this stuff can be very vivid and very real. Yes. And uh, I would like for us to to say something about how... Charlie, what is your best bet right now of survival of the soul and, and soul and, and God? What, what, what is your best, best bet right now, if I may ask you to be so personal? Can I be conservative and stick with the soul instead of God? <laughs> whatever, whatever works for you, yes. Um. My best guess is that we have something like a soul. I mean, I don't like to use that word because it's, you know, so many different religions have said that's my property. You can't use it, whatnot. <laughs> but there's something that I think survives death. And so in one sense, when I die, I think it's going to be quite interesting if I regain consciousness after that. And I kind of hope to regain consciousness after that because, among other things, I want to talk to God about why he lets little kids suffer. Uh, but on the other hand, if there is no survival after death, I'm never going to regain consciousness and realize I had a silly belief. And, you know, and I don't do stupid things as a result of this, you know, uh -huh. but that's my best guess that there's some part of us that survives death. But it's a real complicated problem, you know, and, and I know I'll sound like a typical scientist everywhere to say we need a lot more research on this one. Right. And I try to live my life as if the kind of values that come out of the spiritual traditions really are meaningful. You know, if I was just a materialist, you know, I'd want to get mine and not get caught. I have an exercise in the book, too, or this Western creed thing where people can see how much that's affected us and how nasty it is. You know, uh, that creed was really great. You suggested you go online and actually take it online, and I did that. And uh, it's a creed, that a materialist creed, that if if you believe, I believe in uh, just this material universe. The material universe, universe is the only through, reality. Um, yeah, it's just like, whew. and then you ask us to really look at how that made us feel, and I, yeah. I felt 
extremely lonely after taking that mm-hmm. that creed and, and repeating it with the group and and I I found um, myself questioning what is reciprocal love then what what's the meaning of that and I I felt sad that kindness is yeah. has no purpose except for only self-interest yeah uh, so these are some of the things that yeah. came and it was very interesting that was very informative to me to to know something about what I value. Yeah. Uh, oh, Charlie, we I, could... I, I devised that creed as a teaching exercise for people who didn't believe that materialism has affected them. People discover they've been very affected by it, and it's very sad. Very, very powerful. I encourage people to take it. And, oh, we've run out of time, Charlie. I just thank you so much for being on New Dimensions thank today. Thank you for the opportunity. I've been speaking with Dr. Charles Tart, and he's the author of The Secret Science of the Soul, How Evidence of the Paranormal is Bringing Science and Spirit Together. And to find out more information and to find that that little exercise that he's talking about, you can go to his website, paradigm-sys, S-Y-S, paradigm-sys.com. Or, or through you, the New Dimensions site. Or, yes, absolutely. Or through the, you can get there through the New Dimensions, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions, program number 3628. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore new dimensions.